Uh, Romans chapter 13 is where we're going to be this morning. Thank you so much for being here. And y'all sound great today. I don't know if y'all knew that or not, but man, y'all are really singing today and it's really good. And so it's uh, really excited to be with you today. We're in week two of our series and we've got a little display up here, the four pillars of financial strength. And you know, it's apparent as you read your Bible that God is very passionate about strengthening our lives financially. There are over 2,300 verses in your Bible that deal with money in some way. In fact, the only topic that gets more attention in your Bible than money or finances or possessions is God himself. Jesus said more about money in his three years of his ministry on earth than any other topic, including heaven, hell, or even prayer. And he often used money as a tool to get audience uh, attention because he knew how it affects us. When we, you know, if somebody brings up money, our ears perk up, okay? Uh, some of you are shutting down as we're talking about money this morning. But uh, he said this in Matthew chapter 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid again. <clears throat> and in his joy, he goes away and sells all that he has and he buys that field. Every time I read that verse, you may, maybe you're like me, I always think, Man, I wish I could find a lost treasure, you know, as if that would ever happen. And uh, I was reading an article a few years ago. A Northern California couple lived on a piece of rural property. And about 10 years ago, they were out, they were out walking their dog. Mary, you might want to listen to this story, okay? She's from Northern California. They were walking along a path they'd walked for years, and they kind of nicknamed this spot Saddle Ridge. And a woman saw this old rusty can that was sticking up out of the ground because it had a recent rainstorm and it popped up slightly because of erosion. So she kind of dug around, pulled up the can, and inside the can there were dozens of gold coins in mint condition. And next to that can, there was another can, then another and then another. And when they got done digging, they had found, listen to this now, 1,427 gold coins dating from 1847 to 1894, they were uncirculated. They were in mint condition. It was the largest discovery of its kind in U.S. history. Some of the coins were so rare, just one coin was worth $1 million. The entire find is estimated to be worth $10 million. And so the moral of the story is, if you see a rusty can sticking up out of the ground, start digging like a badger on Red Bull. I mean, just go at it, right? <laughs> You might be thinking, though, that you know finding a lost treasure is your only shot at getting wealthy. I was reading an article in Bloomberg several years ago, and it's called Five Lessons That the Rich Can Teach You. Now, we're not all here to, like, to get rich. We don't love wealth. But as I read this article, I just thought, man, this is so amazing because these five things that we're supposed to learn from rich folks, it's exactly the biblical model for living a life of financial strength. Now, most of us, are probably not going to be millionaires, but I don't know if you knew this or not. In 2004, there were seven and a half million millionaires in the U.S. Today, there are 22 million. So it's tripled in 20 years. A third of the millionaires in America are women. Uh, Two thirds of the millionaires in America have a degree from a state school and they went to public school. So that old image of like the old family, the blue blood Ivy League. No, it's not how it always goes. And listen to this. Eight out of 10 of the millionaires in America grew up in families that were below, at or below middle income levels, and eight out of 10 got no inheritance from their parents. All right, so again, that old myth of, you know, hey, if you have money, it's because you inherited money. It's not true. 
And the average age of America's millionaires is 57. And Bloomberg says it takes, you know, years of, you know, financial discipline and hard work and using wise wisdom over time. But by studying the habits of this group, there are some amazing lessons to learn. A lot of it surprises a lot of people. We've always heard, if you want, hey, if you want to get money, you got to borrow money, right? Or if you're going to you know, make money, you got to spend money. Well, millionaires borrow less money than the average American. Millionaires are half as likely to have credit card debt as the average American. And when they do have a credit card, they carry a very small balance, around $2,000 on average, which is actually less than the median American. And they also are half as likely to have automobile loans as Americans, average Americans. Also, millionaires buy modest houses. What debt the wealthy do have is often invested in real estate, and they're 10% more likely to own real estate than the average American. But again, they don't overextend themselves. They don't go deep into debt to buy these big, amazing houses like Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett is worth you know, something like 70 or $80 billion. He's lived in the same house for 65 years in Omaha, Nebraska. He bought the house for $32,000 back in 1958, and he's still living in it. Also, millionaires don't spend a whole lot of money on cars. The average American spends 10% of their worth on vehicles. Millionaires spend about 3%. In fact, the median value of all vehicles owned by millionaires, they're not Lamborghinis, they're not Mercedes, all right? They're usually Chevys and Fords. It's about $40,000, $50,000. And also, this is from Bloomberg, millionaires give away more money. That would seem to be a paradox, wouldn't it? Like, you know, you're actually getting richer by giving more. But as a percentage, millionaires give away three times more on average than the average American. And they didn't become generous when they became rich, that it was more that they, they, because of the way they managed their money, because of the way they lived their lives, they had this tremendous amount of financial freedom. And because of that freedom, they were allowed to live a generous life. Which you look at our four pillars over here, this is the first pillar of financial strength. And that is this whole idea of freedom, All right? That's our first pillar this week. Okay. Now, I want you to think about this. Romans chapter one, verse one. Now I'm gonna use the new King James for this series that I really love as I was reading this passage a few months ago. I really like the way the new King James kind of brings it to life. And he says in verse, Paul writes in verse one, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And what's so surprising when Paul wrote this is that Nero is ruling in Rome. And so there's this commandment that runs through the entire New Testament. You see it over and over again. You know, be respectful, be obedient, be subject to those in, in, in authority over you. Now look at verse five. Look at verse five. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake, because of this you pay taxes. For they, the government, are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, or we might say respect, and honor to whom honor. Now, we all kind of know this, but the elites of Rome, Roman society, they lived an incredibly lavish lifestyle. Huge homes, elegant clothes, uh, exotic food. 
And then some of the emperors of Rome, they, they, they funded these incredible social programs. Like, you know, if you lived in the, in the continent of Italy, you, know, you were given free wheat for life, you know, those kinds of things. There were these enormous infrastructure projects. We, you know, we travel all around the world today to see the things that the, the Romans built. Well, these big projects that they did, you know, the, the temples, the aqueducts, et cetera, they cost enormous amounts of money. So they had these massive infrastructure projects going on. But their biggest expenditure by far for the Roman government, foreign wars. They had a massive standing army, and they had outposts all over the world. And so Rome had an income tax. They also had uh, a poll tax, a road tax, a wagon tax, a cart tax, a crop tax, an import tax, and an export tax, a harbor tax, a bridge tax, a tax on every animal that you owned, et cetera, et cetera. And adding to the frustration was that the way the Roman government collected their taxes was incredibly corrupt. Are y'all kind of seeing a parallel here, by the way? I don't know if you're noticing that or not. But the tax collectors took far more than they were legally required to take and they made themselves wealthy. And this is gonna really shock you, but the burden of taxation fell primarily upon not the poor, not the wealthy, but who? The middle class, especially the farmers. At one time in Roman history, 90% of the revenue came from taxes on agriculture, the largest segment of the economy. And taxes would consume more than one-third of most farmers' income. Now you say, well, that's too bad for the farmers. Most of the people in Rome lived by, you know, uh, by farming. And so, yeah, you know, if you were just like the average Roman citizen, middle-class citizen, about a third of your money went to the government. Does that sound familiar? Wow. And Roman tax policy and government policy was making the lives of the average working man and working woman miserable. And it was incredibly tempting to not pay your taxes, your customs, and your duties. Because you might would have said to yourself, man, they're hyper wealthy. They don't need my money anyway. They're corrupt. They're wasteful. And into this environment, Paul speaks these words. Look at verse eight. Look at verse eight. Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves has another has fulfilled the law. I want you to really gaze at that first phrase. Oh, no one anything. It's in what's called the present imperative. And what it means is like, don't go on and on and on in debt to somebody else. Don't go on and on and on owing somebody else money. Now that doesn't read Christians should never borrow money for any reason. That's not what it's saying. And there have been people who've said that in the past. But he's saying that followers of Jesus should not go deep into debt to another person or another institution. Uh, there's a scholar that I read that put it this way. He says, the sense of the Greek is that we should not let any debt remain outstanding, that we should not keep on owing anyone for anything. That may be understood as a requirement to always pay what we owe in a timely manner, according to whatever agreement we have made with the lender, or to put it another way, not to live lives of constant dependency on borrowing. You see, the Bible never really expressly forbids going into debt, borrowing money, but it doesn't speak positively of it either. God's word acknowledges that debt is a part of life, borrowing money is a part of it, but it also clearly warns you and me about the power of debt. You see, debt is very, very seductive. It's incredibly easy to get deep into debt, and yet it is so difficult to get out 
once you're there. And the warning of God's word is this, that debt has the awesome power to deprive you of your freedom. Proverbs 22, seven says, the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is the slave to the lender. As a follower of Christ, if you put your faith in Jesus, you are free. You're free from bondage due to the redemptive work of Jesus, his mighty work on your behalf on the cross. And this is why you and I never wanna do anything that might diminish our freedom. In 1 Corinthians chapter seven, Paul said, you have been redeemed at a tremendous cost. Therefore, don't sell yourselves as slaves to men. Now, some of you are really good Bible scholars. You're saying, see, I know, but Paul's talking about being a slave to the law. That's right. When you sign an agreement to borrow money from somebody, it's a legally binding contract. When you sign a loan to buy a car, you fill out a form to get a credit card as you're hurriedly trying to get out of, you know, Dillard's or some other place, uh, using in-store credit to buy new furniture, you sign a contract and then you become a servant to that law. These transactions can be made to sound so good. You're borrowing money from a lender. You didn't borrow money and they didn't loan it, all right? They rented you the money. They are renting the money to you. And the interest is the rent they're collecting on their money. And the one thing you can be sure about is that anytime we rent money from someone else, we are losing some of our freedom. Howard Dayton, one of the founders of Crown Financial Ministries, they've been in this game for years. I mean, they've been a big part of my life for a long time. He said this, when we're in debt, we're in a position of servitude to the lender. And the deeper that we're in debt, the more of a servant we become. We don't have the freedom to decide where we spend our money because we've already legally legally obligated ourselves to pay these debts. Now, if you were to go back to the times the Apostle Paul was writing into, even even 50 or 100 years ago, it was really difficult to get deep, deep into debt like you can today. But in the 1980s, credit card companies, banks, I should say, banks created the credit card. And because of the credit card, they began to aggressively market this new product, this new financial instrument, and it was basically rented money. And now the temptation to rent money is everywhere. I mean, you go to every gas station, every furniture store, every department store, every clothing store, rented money is the most aggressively marketed product in the American economy. We can't go anywhere without somebody trying to entice us to rent money from them. And the more, thing, the more money we rent to buy things that lose their value, the more freedom we relinquish because we paid more than it was ever worth to begin with and it loses value quickly. And it's heartbreaking. You know, over the years, I've, I've counseled so many people who felt trapped and enslaved by their debt And without realizing what was happening, they were losing their freedom, losing their freedom and slipping deeper and deeper into bondage to debt. You might be sitting here today thinking, oh, you know what, Les, I'm I'm listening. I understand, but I don't know how to get out. I don't know what to do. And it just seems like I have to keep borrowing money to pay the money that I pay for the things I've already borrowed to buy. God's solution to debt It's an incredible pathway. I want to walk through it with you really quickly this morning. Number one is this. We have to be willing to admit the real problem. 
That's number one. Admit the real problem, okay? Uh, one of the most theologically powerful songs that I've heard in a long time uh, is from Taylor Swift. <laughs> I'm a Swifty now, all right? But it's called Antihero. You might have seen, you might have heard this song. But she said, I should not be left to my own devices. They come with prices and vices. I end up in crisis. It's me. I'm the problem. It's me. I'll stare directly at the sun, but never in the mirror. You know, so many times when we go deep into debt, it's because we falsely believe that stuff can somehow fill the empty void in our soul. And it's incredibly easy to get seduced into a torrid love affair with material things. And that relationship always leads to the same place, heartache and pain, all right? Heartache and pain. Solomon warned us, if you love money and wealth, you're never gonna be satisfied with what you have. Paul warned us, those who crave to get rich, with a compulsive longing for wealth, they fall into temptation and a what? A trap. They lose their freedom. And so digging out of debt, the first step is digging into your heart. If you're deep in debt, you have to dig deep into your own heart. And maturity is, Lord, would you please show me where I have loved material things more than I should have, where I've loved material things more than freedom where I have loved material things more than honoring you. The psalmist wrote this in Psalm 119. Make me want to obey you rather than be rich. Take away my foolish desires and let me find life, life by walking with you. Isn't that so true? Life is found by walking with the Lord, not by owning certain things and giving the appearance of being somebody that you're not. Number two, ask yourself, I should have put the word honestly, ask yourself honestly what you really need. You know, going back to millionaires, there's a great book written a few years ago called The Millionaire Next Door. I thought this was so interesting. 50% of the millionaires in America buy household supplies at warehouse stores like Sam's or Costco. You know, it's not always, you know, Trader Joe's and Whole Foods and stuff like that. I love those places though. Man, they have the best granola and they have incredible granola. 50% have never spent more than $40,000 for an automobile. 50% regularly have their furniture recovered rather than buying new. And I love this one. 70% of them regularly have their shoes resold and repaired rather than buying new. 70%. Isn't that interesting? What do you need? What do you need? Do we really know? You know how most of us define our needs? By our neighbors. You know, what do we see on social media? You know, what do they have? What are they doing? Where are they going? We define our needs by our neighbors. Your father in heaven knows what you need better than you do, better than your neighbors do. And he promises to provide it. We bless God. We honor God. We walk in freedom when we let God decide what our needs are. This is Jesus' big topic in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, that God loves the sparrows. If he cares for the sparrows, he's gonna care for you. Philippians 4.19, Paul said, God shall abundantly supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Sometimes God's way of providing what we need the most is to deny us what we want the most. I know that has been very true in my life. Sometimes God's way of providing what we need the most has been by, what I need the most has been by denying me what I want the most. 
And debt denies God the opportunity to provide for us what we truly need. In a manner of speaking, you're saying to God, your provision is not good enough. I'm going to have to take this into my own hands. And rather than waiting on the Lord to provide, we rent money, revealing a lack of contentment with what God has provided. And so it comes down to this. Can you bring yourself to fully believe that God is totally invested in your success, your security, and your significance? Everything about the cross assures you and me that God is all in. He is all in. He wants the very best for you and for me. Psalm 35, 27 says, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. So we have to really ask ourselves honestly, what do I really need? And number three is this. We have to have the kind of a, a, a lifestyle that accounts for the unknown, to account for the unknown. My, uh, my sister's house, talking about the last few years, we were, uh, I was down there last week and we were talking about, you know, all the things that no one saw coming. You know, we're talking about the new year, 2024. And somehow this came up. And uh, in 2001, 2001, you know, terrorists hijacked jetliners and they crashed them into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. And we're all kind of going, what? how did that happen? Who thought of that? And then 2008, a housing meltdown. It was the first time in history that real estate actually, or houses actually lost their value. They didn't gain value. And then 2020, you know, a genetically engineered virus from a lab in China just wrecks the entire world economy. Who could have ever seen that coming? And then in 2023, you know, terrorists get in paragliders and they fly over the wall into Israel and attack Israel. Who would have ever seen that coming? Proverbs 27.1, Solomon, he said this, do not boast about tomorrow for you do not know what a day may bring. Unfortunately, many people are always assuming that the future is gonna be like the past and presuming on the future, they borrow all they can based on the current reality. You're making a pledge while you're living on the edge is what you're doing. And if you wanna get out of deep debt, you have to have a biblical mindset about the future. You and I, we know because of our biblical worldview, we live in a world broken by sin. We don't bet on the future, we plan for it. So huge difference between what it means to be financially successful and then what it means to be financial failure. You don't bet on the future, you plan for it. James chapter four, James said, some of you say today or tomorrow, we're gonna go to a certain city, we're gonna stay a year, we're gonna buy and sell and become rich. And if you say things like that, listen to me. You do not know what will happen tomorrow. You just don't. A biblical mindset says this, I have to be far enough out of debt that I will be free to respond to adversity when it comes. Not if it comes, when it comes. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. (laughs) All right, we know it's coming. Okay, number four. Adjust your spending to below your income. I can't remember when it was. It was a long time ago, I think, you know, several years ago, but I was listening to Dave Ramsey on the radio. And he was telling this incredible story. So I want to kind of relay it to you. And uh, there are two couples, both of them around 40 years old. They had both come to him for advice. Couple number one 
had accumulated $150,000 in their 401k, their retirement account, which is a significant amount of money and savings. They had no debt on credit cards. Their home was nearly paid off and they enjoyed nice vacations every year. Couple number two, also around 40 years old, they had no savings, $64,000 in credit card debt. Both cars were leased, $175,000 mortgage on their house. They were dealing with student loans. They were on the verge of bankruptcy and they were desperate. Now, other than their financial problems, what was the difference between those two couples? And this was the big shocker. It just blew me away. The first couple, couple number one, had an annual income of $50,000. The second couple had an annual income combined of $175,000. Isn't that incredible? Amazing. If you're going to be free, you have to find a way to spend less than you earn. Proverbs 21.20 says, There is precious treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man swallows it up. All through the book of Proverbs, you have the mocker, you have the fool, you have the simple, and you have the wise. Who is the fool? The fool is the person who lacks self-control. They're short-sighted. It's not that they're a bad person. They just lack self-control. The mocker, that's a person who has an evil heart, okay, when you read that in Proverbs, okay? But he can only think, the fool can only think about today and he consumes all his resources and he spends every available penny. And so what do we have to do? We have to live on a budget. We have to do that. And so we, 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 uh, we kind of put our money on a diet, okay? There has to be some discipline, some self-control, some hard work to get healthier financially. And you start off by paying that smallest debt and you pay that one off, you get a victory, then you use that money from that payment toward the next, on and on and on. And you know there are all kinds of plans out there, but it all comes down to spending less than you earn because you put your money on a budget. The next one is this. You have to avoid every kind of new debt. And you're like, well, of course. See, we're talking about getting out of debt. would never do that. It's kind of condescending. But I've watched this happen so many times because the power of the purchase can be such an addiction for so many people. You know, it's like, you're in the line at Old Navy or something like that. And, and uh, you're like, well, I know my husband and I, or I know my wife and I, or maybe you're at, uh, you know, Gander Mountain or something like that. I know we've got a plan, but, you know, the kids need clothes for school or, man, this is such a great deal on that new gun or something like that. You know, I'm going to get their card and then I'm going to use it just this one time because this is such a good sale. It's just too good of a deal to pass up. Proverbs 11:15 says, he who hates striking hands in pledge is secure. The handshake, let's make a deal. And Solomon says, the person who hates those kinds of things is secure. Put in today's vernacular, those who had a, have a hatred for signing on the dotted line are secure. If you want to get out of debt, I think it's just really important to just kind of start developing this hatred for the whole idea of the consumer crisis, of all the debt that's being pushed on us all the time. I'm not saying that all debt is bad, but it's just being pushed on us constantly. And you want to kind of have this idea that, man, I just hate this whole system and how this whole thing works, all right? And it kind of helps me to think about, you know, when I'm using a credit card or something, 
I think about some guy with these big bushy eyebrows sitting on Wall Street smoking a cigar, laughing at me, you know, while I'm doing it, you know. Like, no, I hate that guy. I don't want to be a part of that. And then the last thing is this, is you have to be willing to attack the debt that you have right now. You have to just attack it, all right? Uh, I love nature documentaries, man. I'm a sucker for one. I was watching one about, and they, were, they had this little, de- uh, little section about cheetahs, the fastest animal on earth. And one drawback to being a cheetah is your diet is almost entirely fast food, gazelles, all right? <laughs> now, cheetahs are actually faster than gazelles. But a surprising fact, I did not know this until I watched this documentary, 70% of the time, the gazelle gets away from the cheetah. I thought it might be like 20 or 30%, 70% of the time they get away. Now, what happens is a cheetah gets within 150 feet of a gazelle, and man, they leap into action. It's amazing. And they reach 65 miles an hour in seconds, you know, 70 at top speed. But gazelles are incredible because they can reach about 60, you know, in in an instant. And they go, and the gazelles start running, and gazelles are able to make these really quick hairpin turns. Have you ever seen a motorcycle race, you know, where like the motorcycle like leans over, they like almost horizontal to the ground? That's a gazelle. I mean, they're going zigzagging all around through the prairie, and it's just incredible to watch. And the chase will go on and on. It's a spectacle to behold. There's really nothing else like it in the animal kingdom because of the way they turn and move. And then in this scene that I was watching, the cheetah finally caught up to the gazelle, slapped his back legs, and the gazelle went tumbling and the cheetah pounced on the gazelle, but the gazelle kind of rolled up in a little ball, kept rolling around and rolling around, and the cheetah was trying to dig its claws and his teeth into it, but it couldn't. And finally, the gazelle got back up on his feet, and he took off again, and the cheetah took off again, but then he was exhausted, he was tired, and he gave up, and the, and the gazelle got away. It was awesome. It was really, really good. Proverbs chapter six, look what Solomon says. My son, if you guarantee a loan, If you have agreed to a deal with a stranger trapped by your own words, then do this, my son, and deliver yourself because you have come under your neighbor's control. Go, humble yourself. Plead passionately with your neighbor. Don't allow yourself to sleep or even to close your eyes. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand or from the predator's hand. Notice some of the language that Solomon uses here as he applies it to debt. Again, debt is not a sin, but we're just warned against the power of it. He says, you've been trapped by your own words. He says, deliver yourself. You have come under your neighbor's control. And this is where the gazelle image comes into play. If you want your freedom, you have to have passion and you have to be willing to do whatever it takes. Don't give up your freedom. You know, back, I think I mentioned, I was talking to my sister about a week ago. I also got to see my grandmother. She lives down in Houston. My grandmother's almost 100. She's going to be 100 here in about six months. And just an amazing lady. She's in great health and just love talking to her. When I was younger, I didn't really take time to really like, you know, talk to her and ask her lots of things about her life. But the last few years, I've really been trying to. And I don't know how it came up. This time we were sitting around the table and several of our family members, and she mentioned that she had had malaria two times, you know, down in South Texas. We're like, really? You had malaria twice? She said, yeah. And she said, what really got me was diphtheria. I almost died from whooping cough. I was like, wow, I guess the only thing you missed out on was the measles. She said, oh no, that was tough too. (laughs) Really? 
goodness. And I was just thinking about this. You know, when my grandmother was growing up, uh, her father left her mother uh, when she was about 10 or 12 years old with eight kids. And so she lived, they, they lived with her grandparents. And, and then there was the Dust Bowl and there was the Depression. And then my grandmother got married around age 18, married my grandfather, Gene Honeycutt was his name. And he had, they hadn't been married long at all. World War II breaks out. And my grandmother's four brothers, no, five brothers and her husband all left. They all were shipped away. She didn't see her uh, husband for 18 months. One of her brothers, she did not see for four years. They thought he was dead. They had no idea what had happened to him. It was kind of a fun story too, because they said on V-Day, they hadn't heard from him in four years. And on V-Day, on the radio, they were reading a list of all the men who were coming home from Europe. And they all sat around the radio listening. And when they got to, when they got to her last name was shock at the time. When they got to the S's, they finally got to the S's. They heard his name on the radio being called out on the radio because he had come home. They all just erupted with joy. Uh, it's just a great, great story. But after so much hardship for so many years, she and her family, they made so many sacrifices for the war. Why? Rosie the Riveter. Remember Rosie the Riveter? People worked in factories who had never worked before. They took jobs they would have never thought of having. Why? People did without luxuries. They cut way back on all the things like meat, sugar, coffee. Why? They were so passionate about one thing, freedom, freedom. And they would pay any price to keep it. And so Solomon is telling anyone who's deep in debt, man, attack, all right? Keep your freedom at all costs. Get yourself out of debt. You might have to go a little bit crazy for a while, okay? But in God's grace, we have enormous capacities, all right, to work really hard, just like gazelles for a short sprint, all right, and make sacrifices over the long, long, the short term. And just like our grandparents in World War II, if you find yourself deep in debt, what you have to do is you have to go to war, put your life on a war footing and just attack that thing. Call your credit creditor, humble yourself and say, I don't want to default. And I want to say, I, I want to plan. I want to work with you. I want to make a plan and explain to them, I am determined to get out of this. Would you please work with me? And you might have to get a second job. You might have to sell some things, whatever you have to do, whatever you have to do. But 1 Peter 2.16 says, live as people who are free. Live as people who are free. Let's bow our heads together today. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. I know that in an audience like this, that most of us here today on a cold day like this, you're the, you're the Navy SEALs of Faith Covenant Church and I know most of you are probably great. But I just wonder if there's somebody here today that you might say, Les, yeah, uh, I, I've lost some freedom and I'm so anxious about tomorrow. And I'm so anxious because if, if, there's a, you know, if there's something that comes, something big happens, I don't have the resources to deal with it. Or not, you, know, you might say, Les, I'm, I'm really concerned. I'm very anxious. I don't feel free. Because of my financial situation, I just don't feel free. And so I just want to pray for you this morning. And there may be some of us here today like, hey, I'm free, I'm good. 
But do you have somebody that you love and care about who's not? And do you have the, the principles in your own mind? Do you understand this picture of what it means to be free? You might have absorbed some of these principles just from your family of origin and from some other place, but are you able to articulate these things and help somebody else? It's so important in our day and time when so many people are being seduced into deep, deep debt. And so I just want to pray for you if you feel like you've lost freedom today. Lord, I just want to thank you so much for everybody who's here today. And Father, for that person here today, who just doesn't have that, that sense of freedom, Lord Jesus. I just ask that today, Lord, that there would be that passion. Lord, there would be that resolve that only you can give, Lord Jesus, that desire to be free. And I just pray, Father, that where they felt hopeless, where they have felt weak, they felt defenseless, I just pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give them a renewed sense of your love for them, but also your might and your strength on their behalf. And I just pray, Father, that you just give them, Lord, just an inspired idea, a plan, a vision for what their life can be when they're free. So, Lord, I just pray that for, for all of us here, but, Lord, particularly that person who's just living today under the weight, Lord, under the weight of financial strain. And, Lord, I just thank you so much for all you give us. Thank you for our freedom our spiritual freedom, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.